We're going to look into the uh, second group of verses in 1 Thessalonians 2. Last week we started with uh, verse 1 and went through verse 4. Today we're going to go from 5 to 8. But I want to read that whole section to you. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. As I stated, last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 4, which includes Paul's affirmation that he, Silvanus, and Timothy were committed to these three things. One, to teach and disciple with courageous boldness. In spite of persecution and opposition, And we ought to be courageously bold in shining the light of our lives and in speaking the truth of God's word into the darkness around us. Secondly, they were committed to teach and disciple according to the true gospel without alteration or misrepresentation or personal agendas. And I encourage you last week to seek out preachers, Bible study leaders, Christian books, etc., that follow this example. Preaching the true gospel. And finally, they were committed to teach and disciple according to what pleases God, rather than what is pleasing to those listening. Why? Because they were in this ministry for God's sake, not their own. And since they were doing this for God's sake, they were looking for sincere converts, godly Christians, and a spiritually healthy church, not a larger following. The reality is God's gospel is offensive to those who want to continue in their sin. It is only appealing to those who recognize their sinfulness, feel convicted about their selfishly sinful ways, see their need to be saved from the power, practice, and penalty of sin, are willing to repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ and proceed from there to pursue God and a life of godliness. For all others, the gospel is an offense. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 
15 through 17, and I want to read this to you. For we are a fragrance of Christ. We have an odor about us. He uses the word fragrance at first. But we smell. And we should smell like Christ. We should smell for the sake of Christ like Christ. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, that is to the perishing, we are an aroma from death to death. Or in other words, we are the stench of death. To the other, that is those who are being saved, we are an aroma from life to life. We are the fragrance of life. Same message, same people presenting the message. We smell different to different people. And who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to to handle this kind of ministry and always smell good to everyone? Not even Christ was adequate for that. For we are not like many peddling the word of God. We aren't just trying to smell good to everybody. We want to present the truth, he's saying. So we aren't like many Notice the word many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Today we're going to look at verses 5 through 8, where Paul continues to explain what we might call his ministry model. A model that we would be wise to follow in dealing with believers and unbelievers around us. And a model we'd be wise to seek when deciding which church or Bible study to attend and which Christian books to read. With that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll look at verses 5 through 8. Father, we are just as much the body of Christ as these Thessalonians. And what you had to say to them, please speak to us. Give us insight and understanding, and insight and understanding that will build our faith, draw us closer to you, lead us in your way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, Paul writes. To flatter is to use insincere praise, kind words, or affectionate actions in order to appeal to someone's self-love or pride or desire to feel good about themselves. And we do that in an effort to get what we want from those we are flattering. The three words, as you know, at the end of that phrase, indicate that they knew Paul did not use flattering speech to get what he wanted from them or to get what he wanted for them. There are two truths here that I want to point out. And the first truth is this. Though what what Paul wanted for them was good, he refused to use flattering speech to manipulate them into responding the way he wanted them to respond. There's an old proverb that doesn't appear in the Bible. Some people say it was started by Benjamin Franklin. Some people say it came from before him, out of Europe. Regardless of where it came from, I think it is true and worth noting. Uh, 
I remember hearing it from my own father when I was a kid. And this is, this is the proverb. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. When we manipulate older teens and adults into responding the way we want or doing what we want, even if it is what is best for them, when we manipulate them into that, we have only changed them temporarily and only on the outside. They're still the same on the inside and will in time return to being who they really are. The point is this. Flattering speech may motivate someone to give you what you want or respond the way you want, but it will not serve God's interests or bring about the good of the one you have manipulated. Because a man convinced against his will, whether by flattery or threats, is of the same opinion still. Sadly, we like to be flattered. That's our weakness. The second truth is this. Paul asserts that the... This, uh, by the way, let me just go back to that for a moment. Think about Madison Avenue, what they've done to us. How do they sell us things? They're making us feel good about what we don't need but should buy based on what the manufacturer wants to sell flattery it's men pleasing and sadly this whole thing has crept into the church but we'll get to that okay the second truth is this paul asserts that the thessalonian believers had the ability okay get this had the ability to discern when someone was flattering them for personal gain and this is true of us it's true of us today we have that ability But if this is true, why are we so easily swayed by flattery? Well, as I've said, flattery appeals to our self-love. It appeals to our pride. It appeals to our desire to feel good about ourselves. And those three reasons alone is why it so easily sways us to do what the flatterer wants us to do. However, as Paul said, we have this ability to discern when someone is using flattery to manipulate us. We can discern that. So my urging to you is, let us raise our wisdom of discernment above. Make it more important than our desire to have good feelings about ourselves. Let us raise our wisdom of discernment above the good feelings of being flattered so that we resist the temptation to give in to the manipulative efforts of anyone. And that includes people like me, preachers, Bible teachers, Christian writers, Christian counselors, Songwriters, 
Let us resist this manipulative effort to sway us into doing what they want rather than what God wants. The next thing that Paul says is, they didn't come with a pretext for greed. God is witness. The word pretext is defined as presenting something in a way that covers or conceals your true motives or your true feelings or your reasons for what you're doing. Though the word pretense has a somewhat different meaning, uh, Jesus uses use of the word pretense in Matthew 23, 14, I think helps us understand what Paul is talking about here. And Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And here's what he says to them. And I'll give you the history as I go through what he said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. All right? Many of the religious leaders were pretty well-to-do. And many of them owned property in Jerusalem. And they rented that property out. And, of course, there were poor people living in some of their rental units. And they had to, you know, if the poor people couldn't pay, they had to throw them out, uh, move them out of their property so they could bring paying renters in. Well, the poor person who, say a widow, who's getting, who can't pay the rent, is losing their rental unit, has to be out in the street. They call for this religious leader to come and pray for them, to seek God's help in, in staying in their home. And so this scribe or Pharisee, this hypocrite, shows up and notice Jesus' words. And for a pretense, You make long prayers as if you are sincere when in fact your prayer is intended to make the widow think one thing, like you really care, and you're trying to get God to care, while you intend another, and that is to throw her out as soon as you get back to your uh, business office because now you realize you can't pay for sure. Therefore, Jesus says, you will receive greater condemnation. Do you have the idea the word pretense is very similar to the word pretext? And that's the idea. Those of us who stand in front or try to sell you things, we may have a pretext for greed. We may be covering or concealing our true motives or our true feelings or our true reasons for teaching what we're teaching or leading or we're leading or selling you the Christian books that we're selling you. The word translated as greed in this statement by the New American Standard can also be translated as covetousness. And covetousness is a strong desire for more than you have and need. Now it's true that this word is often used in reference to money or financial gain of some sort. However, that is not its only application. And given the focus and efforts of many preachers, teachers, writers, Uh, Christian musicians, whatever today, we could also understand it to being to refer to coveting a larger following or coveting greater fame or getting more renown, the renown of having, say, a global ministry. Pretense, hiding what my real intentions are, 
However, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had no pretext, no hidden motives, no greedy agenda. They weren't there for themselves. And this is important for all of us who are serving in the church or in parachurch organizations or just loving our neighbor as we ought. They weren't there for themselves. They were there for God's sake. And for the sake of those who had not heard the gospel and for the sake of the growth in godliness of those who responded to the gospel, that's why they were there doing what they're doing. They weren't seeking or building something for themselves in the name of God. They weren't trying to feel better about themselves. They weren't trying to satisfy the need for approval and acceptance. There was no pretext. And greed would have been of no benefit to them based on how they were living there in Thessalonica. In fact, if greed for financial gain is the issue... If that's what it really refers to, financial gain in this case, we have only to read 1 Thessalonians 2.9 and 2 Thessalonians 3.8 and 9 to see that Paul wasn't in it for the money. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. What does that refer to? Paul built tents. He was a tent maker. That's how he funded his own ministry. Right? They worked night and day. He worked one job to fund the ministry, and he did the work of the ministry. He wasn't there for their money. If we go on to 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 8 and 9, We read this, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Well, now, mind you, there is a context here, as you might recall from reading through this whole thing, as we did at the beginning, even in Thessalonica, The culture was pushing back against the gospel because the gospel was calling them to abandon their idol worship. And we know from other New Testament letters that people lost employment, people lost homes, people were thrown in prison. That was part of the persecution that came for converting to Christianity. So they might not have had much to share with Paul or Silvanus or Timothy. But he makes the point we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Not because we did not have the right to this. Remember Paul himself wrote that the minister has the right for support. That's a right given by God. But but we did this not because we did not have the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. It isn't always easy to see the true intent of those in positions of church leadership or public ministry. But with time, personal maturity, good observation and thoughtfulness, it can be done. It can be done, and Jesus affirms this, in my opinion, in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, where he says, Beware of the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing. If you look no further than their clothing, you think they're sheep. 
It takes some investigating. It takes some careful listening. It takes some thinking about what they're saying and why they're saying it. Yeah, they come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In verse 16, notice what Jesus says. You will know them by their fruits, the outcome. My younger brother attended a church in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana for a number of years and uh, sang its praises to me a number of times. I attended there once. Huge place. I mean, just, it must have been able to seat 5,000 plus in that building. Uh, The worship was very dynamic. They had great worship leaders and instruments and what have you. They had a special speaker that night, and the pastor always spoke regardless. So the special speaker spoke, and then the pastor spoke after that. And uh, this was, in, in my younger brother's estimation, just proof of the spiritual quality of the church. So I was not as old then as I am now when I went to that church, but even then as I listened and I observed what's going on, um, they, they, you know, we don't take an offering here. We have the offering box, but in many churches they take an offering. That's part of their church service. In that church, they took the offering, and then the people would go along the way and count it, and if it wasn't enough, the pastor would take a second offering, and I believe that night they did take two. Uh, Phil said sometimes they took three or four, depending on what they needed. Um, But the people gave. And that, too, was a demonstration of the spirituality of the leadership in the church. About uh, eight years ago, it became uh, open that this pastor, he basically owned the church. All the money that was coming in was going to him. He was keeping most of it for himself. He had immoral issues in his life. Uh, had two sons that worked in the church. They were equally involved in these things, and the whole thing blew apart. For me, as I sat there and listened, the one time I was there, it did not sound healthy. It did not sound right. And I'm only telling you this because you have the ability to at least ask for God's wisdom when you are listening to somebody, when you are going someplace, when you're part of a church or part of a conference or you're part of a Bible study or you're reading books, you have the ability to at least ask for God's wisdom to discern, is this person leading me towards God or are they leading me someplace they want? This pastor told the church that they would never put one brick in place unless it was paid for before they put it in place. And when the church split and and he left, the church found out they owed several million dollars that he had borrowed from the bank to build the building rather than paying for it as they went. And mind you, all those offerings he had were to pay for it as they went. Are we willing to be discerning? Are we willing to look beyond the sheep's clothing? My encouragement to you is to do that. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. To seek glory, just in and of itself, to seek glory is to seek praise, honor, admiration, distinction. 
That means to be different from others, to be noticed as being different, hopefully better, right? We want to be thought of as better than others, distinction or renown. We seek glory from men because we are self-centered and self-serving. We seek glory from men to satisfy our pride. We seek glory from men because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Even when our behavior is such that we ought to feel guilty or bad about ourselves. And we seek glory from men because we are pleased more by people thinking well of us than God thinking well of us. They didn't come seeking glory from men. They didn't have these motivations in their life, these weaknesses. You see, to seek glory from God is to seek glory in the right way, with the right mindset, and from the right person. This doesn't mean we shouldn't do a good job. This doesn't mean we shouldn't want a good reputation. But whose glory are we seeking? Where are we seeking our glory from? Where do we want to get our praise from? To seek glory from God is to seek glory in the right way, with the right mindset and from the right person. It is to seek the kind of glory that does not harm our character or feed our pride or damage our reputation, or make those we are serving feel used. The reality is we cannot gain glory from God, praise from God, without being humble, godly, doing what is pleasing to God, and suffering for righteousness' sake. These are qualities and actions that actually remove us farther from the world and make us more like Christ. If you are doing your job unto God, for the glory of God, you will be doing the job the best you can. If that's not good enough, you accept the uh, decision of those over you, And you either move on or you improve. Who are you doing your job for? Who are you loving your spouse for? Who are you raising your kids for? Did I raise the boys for my sake so they'd make my life easier? So that I could be happier? Did I raise them for God's sake, for the sake of the one they might marry? for the sake of the teachers they would have. And I didn't just raise them, Barbie and I did. And we talked about this many years ago. Who are we raising these kids for? Why are we doing this? There are several other portions of Scripture that affirm that Paul was seeking glory from God and not men. And I want to draw your attention to just two of them. In speaking to the elders from the church in Ephesus, Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, You yourselves know, you elders from Ephesus, you know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you public and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's suffering to be there. He's telling them the whole truth. He's not holding back. And he's willing to accept their response to the truth. One of the things that I think is challenging for anybody who's up front is being willing to accept the response of those you're teaching. It isn't always what you want. But once I try to manipulate the response to get the response I want, I'm no longer teaching you the truth. I'm teaching you what I need to say to get you to respond the way I want you to respond. Paul didn't do that. And to the church in Corinth, Paul said in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We're not giving up. We're not being discouraged. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. In the sight of God, not to every man's felt needs, not to every man's sense of desire to feel good about themselves, but to their conscience, that part of people that knows right from wrong. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing and in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He knew what it was to have the message rejected. He knew what it was to have himself rejected. Jesus knew that. Why do we think it should be any different for us? Whether you're talking to your neighbor, talking to your family member, talking to a co-worker, leading a Bible study, or, or teaching up front in church, why do we think it should be any different for us? I think one of the sad realities is there is a way too many people in the church today who think they should be able to say it right. And when they say, I should be able to say it right, what they mean is they should get the response that they expect from those who are listening. I can tell you that God has said it right to me and he didn't get the response he wanted on every case. I resisted. I rebelled. I went my own way. I can guarantee you that I can say it as right as I know to say it and I don't get the responses that I think I ought to get. Will I accept that? Or will I manipulate the gospel in order to get what I want? Paul went on to say, verse 5 in 2 Corinthians 4, For we do not preach ourselves. We're not in this for ourselves. We're not trying to get a following. We're not trying to build this big church. We're not in it for ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's why we're here. 
and ourselves, your bondservants. Not the important ones, but the servants. Your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God has said, light shall shine out of darkness. And he is the one who has shown in our hearts. It is God in our hearts that allow us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There are those who view the role of church leader, elder, pastor, teacher, Christian author, songwriter, or singer as a position that makes the person in that position a person of importance. And because they want to be seen as important or to be honored and respected as one who is important or praised for doing important work, they seek the position. This is ungodly. And pursuing these positions to feel important dishonors God. It distorts the gospel. It does harm to the emotional, mental, and spiritual health of those being served. Now there's no question such a ministry can look good from the outside. It can look good to those who are not in the inner circles of the leadership. But the closer you get to those seeking glory from men, the worse they look and the less spiritual the ministry looks in relation to true godliness. Barb and I went to a church a number of years ago. When we walked in, we thought we had found heaven. And there was much good at that church, a lot of good. And that church gave me many opportunities. And we were there for some number of years. But one of the things I learned, it was a valuable lesson. Closer I got to the top, and one day I was one of the ministers in that church. The closer I got to the top, the worse it looked. And that is a sad reality. And I've heard that same story from others in ministry. And it is a sad, sad reality. It ought not to be the case. It ought to look better at the top than at the bottom. But at the bottom, there was just an amazing movement of, say, the Holy Spirit or something or someone. And it was a wonderful experience. But it wasn't the same at the top. Verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. When we want older teens and adults to behave a certain way and they resist or rebel... What's our tendency? Our tendency is to increase the pressure by raising our voice, using stronger language, making threats. And though this may get the person to do what we want, it only benefits God and the other person's spiritual well-being if the results are a change of heart change in thinking a change of beliefs and values and if it results in inwardly motivated 
and outwardly manifested changes for good. Do you get that by pressuring people? We've already talked about this. The reality is you don't. Now I know Jesus used strong language with those religious leaders who knew the scriptures yet refused to live up to what they know. And I've heard the argument over and over again, well, Jesus did that. Why can't we? Yeah, he did. But I'm not Jesus. And I kindly say to you today, you're not either. And we know how he talked to Peter a couple times. Get behind me, Satan. Yet when dealing with most folks, most of the time, Jesus was gentle. Like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children. He was patient. And this approach became part of what we might call Paul's ministry model. We prove to be gentle among you, he said, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I remember being told by a friend of mine many, many years ago that I was like a guy who had a mace in one hand and a club in the other. And I just beat the snot out of... I shouldn't use that word in church. I just beat people up. And he was right. I did. You know, if you didn't change, I beat you harder. But there are two scriptures that have spoken loud and clear to me on this matter. And the first one is in Isaiah and the second one is in Matthew. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, extinguish, yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. Gentleness, patience, tenderness, and kindness in dealing with sinners, or when dealing with those who are hurting and responding in ungodly ways. There's lots of people like that. Or when dealing with immature or wayward Christians does not remove honesty about their thinking and behavior. We can be gentle. We can be like a nursing mother. We can be tender and patient and still tell them the truth. At least I believe that. Our goal in dealing with others is to be as honest as they will allow us to be. And you'll know when they don't want your honesty anymore because they'll walk away. We should be as honest as they will allow us to be while being as gentle, patient, tender, and kind as we ought to be as Christians. Second scripture that speaks to me about this is Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 maybe more well-known than one I just gave you come to me Jesus said all who are weary and heavy laden I think one of the things that has helped me change my ministry model from clubbing and beating people to trying to be truly helpful is listening how do you know if the person is weary and heavy laden without listening without hearing their story without understanding where they're coming from what they've been through 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I can assure you that not everybody wants rest. They don't want to put in the effort. They don't want to change that much. I was talking to a lady just last week, and uh, I did the marriage counseling for them, so things aren't going going so well, and she came for help. And she said, I know I'm selfish, but if he doesn't change, why should I? (laughs) She didn't really want rest. She wanted relief. You see, rest comes from godliness. Rest comes from being who God created us to be, not just relief. You can get relief, but you won't be changed. And it just takes the next circumstances, like the current circumstance, to put you into, make, make your life a mess. Fill you with anxiety, fill you with anger, fill you with fear. You haven't found rest, you just found momentary relief. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How do you find rest? Learning to live like Jesus lived. Learning to think like Jesus thought. Having the attitude of Christ. Let this mind be in you, Paul writes, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's how you find rest. My yoke is easy, he said, and my burden is light. Telling the wayward or untaught or immature How they ought to live is good. Showing them and walking with them through the learning process is essential. It's better. It's best. And with that in mind, notice Paul's next statement in verse 8. He not only taught them, he got personally involved in their lives. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. These eight verses, in my opinion, present a ministry model for the church, but also a ministry model for any of us who's dealing with anyone be it someone in our own home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, wherever we might be. These are lessons that we are wise to learn and live by.